If you have a Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 5, because we've been going through the book of Joshua on this series on leadership, and um, we started by doing a series on the mark of a leader, and then uh, we switched last week to talking about the fruits of leadership. When God calls us into leadership, what are some of the fruits that we can expect uh, to experience when we're leading into the things that God is calling us into? So this week we've come uh, to Joshua chapter 5, and isn't it true about every one of us that has an opportunity to lead, that when we step into it, we begin to lead, our pressing question is, is this going to work? You know, the thing that you're leading to or what it is that you're trying to accomplish, you're wondering, is, is this thing going to work? I've been given this responsibility, whether it's your student are you going to make it? Are you going to pass? Or whether you're leading a company, is the company going to fail? Or if you're in a marriage and you're like, is this relationship going to work? Or if you're single and you're like, well, what is singleness supposed to look like? Am I supposed to stay here forever? Maybe that's your call. Is that work? Or maybe you feel called to get married and how do you go out and find a spouse? I mean, how does that work? Is it going to work? Or whether or not you're just talking about your own moral life, bringing leadership to your own heart and your relationship with God, you want to succeed. How does it work? I was listening this morning on the way here uh, to NPR, and they were talking about George Washington. This guy's written a new biography of George. And he's talking about uh, that his greatest failure was at Fort Necessity, where he lost one-third of his men because he wasn't prepared in the French and Indian War when they were attacked. And that that failure, this is what the guy said, that failure marked the rest of his life. It was interesting, isn't it? Because as leaders, we do not want to fail. We don't want to fail. We don't want those kind of marks on our life, you know? Regardless of what it is. So we try to get control. If I can get control, if I can know what it takes to succeed, then I can look at that and say, am I willing to pay that price? Or am I not willing to pay that price? And if I pay the price, then I'm going to succeed. And we live under this illusion, let me say that again, under the illusion that we can actually control success. Right? Like a mother who actually believes that they can determine the outcome of their children when they're young. Sorry to bust that bubble. Wow. Yeah, wait until they get a little older and they say, hey, I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. And they're 12 years old. Uh, I was reading this book uh, this last week. This is uh, Rework. Um, it's a business uh, book on all the things that you learned in business that were wrong. Have any of you ever read this book? All right, a couple of you? Yeah? One of you? All right. Does anybody want to read this book? All right. Two of you. Wow, all right. <clears throat> Well, maybe after this you'll want to read it. It's kind of funny because these guys are really uh, just kicking out the door all the traditional ideas of what it takes to be a successful leader. And this is uh, an interesting thing. They said, why don't we just call plans what they really are? Guesses. Start referring to your business plan as business guesses. Your financial plans are financial guesses. And your strategic plans are strategic guesses. Now you can stop worrying about them as much. They just aren't worth the stress. 
When you turn guesses into plans, you enter a danger zone. Plans let the past drive the future. They put blinders on you. This is, this is where we're going because, well, that's where we said we were going. And that's the problems. Plans are inconsistent with improvisation. That sounds good, doesn't it? They could be completely wrong. Who knows? It's just their opinion. But as leaders, we like to get our hands around stuff, and that's what creates the perfect storm for us. And when I say leader, you know, we've talked about that all of us are given responsibility to lead, whether it's in your own heart or your own moral life or whether you're in a family or whether you're in a job or whether you're in a community or whatever, that people are looking to you or you're looking to you. And it's the perfect storm when I take my hatred of failure, which we all share that, and our fear of failure and the opportunity to lead when God calls us into it. Because let me tell you something about when God calls us into leadership, he calls us into situations that are over our head. So we're walking into leadership with a fear of failure into a situation that I'm not equipped for and I'm already in over my head and it creates the perfect storm. When I was in uh, college, the summer before my senior year, I'd lived in the town where our school was and I thought, well, you know, I better get a full-time job for the summer and I heard that there was a children's home right outside of town and Mainly the kids in this home were uh, kids whose parents uh, were in prison. And so I went and talked to the director and said, hey, I'm looking for a job. And he said, great, come on in. And he sat me down and he goes, do you have a criminal record? And I said, "Uh, not that I know of. Uh, I think everything was prior to turning 18. And he goes, okay, great. He says, do you like kids? I said, generally, I like teenagers, you know. And he goes, great. And he goes, are you crafty? I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by crafty? He said, do you like arts and crafts? Okay, you're interviewing for a job, and the guy's looking at you and going, do you like arts and crafts? What do you say? I love arts and crafts. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. This guy looked at me, and he goes, you know who lives here, right? And I said, well, kids. And he goes, well, these are kids whose parents are in prison. You understand that? And so we got them. These aren't orphans. These are kids that are without parents because of the choices that their parents have made. I said, okay, I understand that. He goes, great, you're hired. And he threw me this catalog. And uh, I said, what is this? He goes, you're in charge of the summer arts and crafts program and swimming lessons. (laughs) And I said, what does that mean? He goes, you got to figure it out. Good luck. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, by the way, don't let them get bored. So I go home, you know, and I'm going through this arts and crafts catalog, and it's my job to pick out their summer activities, all right? You know, it's a question every leader asks is, God, are you in this? See, we know that God is for us. We've been singing about that. But is God for what I'm in? And that's where we find Joshua. Joshua chapter 5, and then go to verse 13, because what's happened is, They've crossed the Jordan River. They have come over into uh, Gilgal. And now uh, they've experienced circumcision of all the men. And now they've celebrated the Passover. 
and they've got their backs to the river, which was at flood stage. It stopped. They crossed over it. Then the flood stage came back. And now the manna has stopped. For 40 years, God has been feeding them with manna. And that day, the manna stopped. And we find Joshua standing on a hill, looking down at the one thing that stood as an obstacle between them and the promised land. And it was the city of Jericho. Big city with big walls and everybody had run inside the city. And they'd locked the walls. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out. And Joshua was there contemplating. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up. And he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And it's interesting. Let's stop there just for a second because... It's interesting that he would say in here that, Jer- that Joshua looked up. I mean, I can just imagine, as I'm sure you guys can imagine, that he's in way over his head. I mean, he's never been in this situation before. His men are still, still healing in their tents from circumcision. They just had a party. Uh, and here's this city, this wall, and he doesn't know anything about taking down a walled city. I mean, what does he know? He's never done that. He's been living out in the desert for the last 40 years. And you can imagine that Joshua's head was hanging down because of the situation. And you know what's easy? Because have you ever been in that situation? Where your head's just kind of heavy because you don't know what to do. Because something is on you and you just don't know what to do with it. You can't take it off and you don't know how to go forward. You're just kind of stuck in it. It's easy in those moments for us to begin to define what we believe God should consider success being. We do it. I mean, we know that the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. All right. We know, let's see, that all the promises are good for us. He works all things together for the good. So what does that mean for us? I mean, here, being here at Midtown, uh, it's interesting because there's no, uh, nowhere in my strategic planning had I planned for our chairs to go bad over the summer because we put them in storage facilities and see people crash to the ground all over the room the first month we were back at this building. Were any of you victims of that, by the way? All right. Hang on, the service isn't over yet. You know, or moving three times in the last four months, or being in a building where we've already outgrown our children's space. And we just, that wasn't in my business plan. That's not the strategy that I thought uh, I would have or what success would be. Or my life. I mean, think about your life. Don't we have expectations and images of what we think things should be or how they should go or where you should be right now in your life? And when life doesn't measure up to that, isn't that frustrating? Because you're thinking, if I was God, this is what I would do for me, right? If God really loved me, then God would do this. I remember we were pregnant with, well, I say we, you know what I mean? All right, for all the men in this room, we were pregnant, Renee and I, with our firstborn son, Zach. And we decided that we were going to do natural childbirth. Notice how I keep saying we. And uh, so we went to all the classes. And, you know, if you've not done that, you know, there's a lot of breathing exercises. Hee, hee, hoo, all that stuff. And <laughs> tennis balls that you bring to rub the backs. And you know what I'm talking about? This Lamaze and... So I'm prepared. I've taken notes. I'm serious. I'm ready. We even had a bag that we had by the door that whenever we went into labor, 
I'm going out, I'm grabbing the bag, and that was my Lamaze bag. Because guess what my name was during the uh, birthing process? Coach. I was going to coach Renee on how to have a baby. (laughs) Seriously, I'm stoked, prepared, and I'm ready to be a dynamic leader. And my expectation was that I was going to lead her to a painless birth of successful proportions. They were going to make videos of us and say, this is the perfect. I was prepared. I was ready to be a great leader and we were going to have success. And so I go in and, uh, and I am chewing spearmint gum and, uh, Renee's going through one of her contractions and I get up in her face and actually, uh, her family showed up and they'd walked into the room. That's not a good idea, but I couldn't help her. He, he, who, and control family at the same time. All right. So I focused in and in the middle of he, he, she looked at me and she goes, Get out of my face. (laughs) Leave me alone. In her pain, the smell of spearmint nauseated her, which she associated with me. All right? And so I am removed from the process. Get out of here, coach. And her dad, he walks me outside and he goes, is there something you should tell me? Are you guys okay? That's not how I planned for it to go. That wasn't success for me. And we do the same thing with our kids. We do the same thing with our jobs. We do the same thing with our own personal lives, with our own hearts, is that we have certain expectations of what we think success should be. And we hope God buys into our view of success, that we never get poor, that we never be in one, that we never have problems in relationships. And when those kind of things don't begin to happen, it's easy for us to start questioning, is God really for me? Is God really here? Does God really care? And then we take a step further from where are you, God? Why don't you buy into my understanding of success? And we take a step further into a place that I call the shame place where it's really start, it's easy to start saying, I'm not good enough to get what I want. I've done too much stuff that's wrong. And I understand that God doesn't want to give me what I want or be for me because he isn't pleased with me. I'm not pleased with me. How do we get there? And I think the way we get there is that we kind of, we're raised on the idea that I can get what I want. I mean, we're taught all our lives to ask, what's the question that's most pressing on us most of our lives? What do you want? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want your life to look like? What kind of lifestyle do you want to have? What do you want? Because here's the answer that we're grown up on. You can do it. You can get it. Just declare what you want and then go after it because you can do anything. And remember, you can be whatever you want to be. Even the president of the United States. Which, who wants that? I mean, but here's what's wild about the Bible is it never says that. It never says that. It never says that you can get what you want. And it never says you can be whatever you want to be. 
The Bible is asking me to step into a very different paradigm. And the paradigm it's asking me to step into is the one who made me knows the plans that he has for me. He's prepared ahead of time the good works that he wants me to walk in. He made me the way he made me because he has a specific purpose and a specific call in my life. And he's asking me to step step into that. But when I bring how do I get what I want to my faith, I believe God's here to give me what I want. Like, let me ask you a simple question. When you die and go to heaven, what college jersey is God going to have on? I mean, seriously, yesterday, who was God for? You think God's an Alabama fan? No? Vandy fan? If he is, he's not good, all right? It's easy for us to start imagining that God's a genie in the bottle. And my rubbing the genie is really I go to church. The way I rub the genie bottle is that I do extraordinary things, like I give money to something, or I pray, or, you know, or I fast. Wow, if I fast, that's like, you know, super massaging the bottle, you know. D.A. Carson, a theologian in his book, How Long, O God, wrote this. He said, much mental suffering is tied to our false expectations. We may so link our hopes and joys in future to a new job, to a promotion, or to certain kinds of success, to prosperity, that when they fail to materialize, we're utterly crushed. Let's go back to Joshua. So Joshua sees this man in the middle of the road, and he's got his sword drawn, and Joshua's lifting up his head from the heaviness of the circumstances that he's in, not knowing how to take the wall of Jericho down. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? are for our enemies. I mean, you just imagine, you know, Joshua's courageous, you know, he's bold. God said, do not be afraid. And he's not afraid, man. He sees this guy in the middle of the road and this guy is significant enough to ask him, who are you for, us or them? And this is an interesting answer because the guy in the middle of the road goes, no. What, what kind of answer is that? Are you for us or for them? No. I think that answer is saying something really loud. Wrong question. Hey, Joshua, that's a wrong question. Well, what was the right question? Look at the next verse. As commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. What's the right question? Instead of answering who are you for, this guy in the middle of the road said, you need to know who I am. It's crazy. Who is this guy? Well, we're going to read in just a second that Joshua fell down on his face and began to worship him. And everywhere in Scripture where someone fell down and worshiped an angel of the Lord, that angel stopped them, but not here. Actually, Whoever this was in the middle of the road encouraged more of it. Who is this? There's only one that I know that is the commander of the Lord's army, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing because wherever the Lord appears, people tend to ask that question. Like in Acts chapter 9, when Paul the apostle on the road to Damascus is faced with Jesus, what does he ask him? Who are you, Lord? 
Because the whole gospel, the whole story of Scripture is not about a what, but it's about a who. You know, we were on a retreat this weekend with, uh, with all our small group leaders and had a chance to share with them about a question some of us were wrestling with on my back porch a couple of weeks ago where I asked some guys, I said, do you ever feel like you're waiting for something to happen in your life? Do you ever kind of feel like you got this vague feeling that you're just waiting for something to happen? And we started talking about that because we all kind of agreed that there's just this sense of uh, just something that's there that just nothing seems to touch. I mean, you know, career success or marriage or kids or money or respect or so, just something there. And as we began to uh, talk about that, we really made some interesting discoveries. Let me read for you out of uh, The Awakened Heart. This is uh, Gerald May. He's quoting William Blake at the beginning of this uh, reading. He says, we're put on earth a little space that we might learn to bear the beams of love. Then Gerald May goes on to say, there's a desire within each of us in the deep center of ourselves that we call our hearts. We were born with it. It's never completely satisfied and it never dies. We're often unaware of it, but but it's always awake. It is the human desire for love. Every person on this earth yearns to love, to be loved, to know love. Our own identity or our true identity, our reason for being is to be found in this desire. I think William Blake was right about the purpose of humanity. We're here to learn to bear the beams of love. There are three meanings of bearing love, to endure it, to carry it, and to bring it forth. In the first, we were meant to grow in our capacity to endure love's beauty and pain. In the second, we are meant to carry love and spread it around as children carry laughter and measles. And in the third, we are meant to bring new love into the world, to be birthers of love. This is the threefold nature of our longing. As we were kind of talking about together what that space was, that vague sense of we're waiting for something to happen, we realized that we're really talking about we're waiting for someone to happen. We're really waiting because we, fig- we, we discussed about the fact that when we're created in the image of God, that John in his epistle said that God is love. And if we're created in God's image, then we are people that are made to be those that have great capacities to be loved and great capacity to love. Imagine that, that the very purpose in which God created you was so that you would be loved. Like, think about it for a minute. Have you ever been loved by somebody that you said, that's it? That is so complete and perfect that I am completely satisfied that I will never need to be loved again. No more words of encouragement. No more I love yous. No more dates. No more gifts. No more, I don't, I am completely filled up. You know, it's, it's strange, but I'm kind of like a fire. But my fire always needs more wood on it. And when it comes to love, I don't think I ever get enough. Give me more. Give me more. And you know, even in relationships, it can be somewhat abusive, can't it? Because it almost sounds like what we're saying is, whatever you give me is never enough. But what if God made us that way? 
What if God made us that way to where we realize there's nothing on this side of heaven that is going to fill up that aching except for him? It says in Ephesians chapter 3 that if we could grasp the height, the width, the length, the depth of God's love for us, it'd fill us up to the very measure of God, the very full measure of God's glory. What does that mean? To be filled up to the measure of God. See, that changes all the categories, doesn't it? Because if I understand now that the purpose of God, when he, when he comes into my life, is to fill me up with love, and for me to experience that he's love, and to know that I've been made one to walk in love, that I've been made now to be a bearer of the beams of love, doesn't it change success for me as a leader? That it changes it from a project to love? How did he display this? In Philippians 2, it says, talking about Jesus, that he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why did he do all that? For love. So let's go back to Joshua 5. Because what is the right response to the right answers that we get as leaders? Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and worshiped. So he hung his head now not because he was feeling the weight of his circumstances. He hung his head because now he was worshiping the king and the ruler of every situation that causes our heads to hang is now present and he is greater than all. And worship always leads to the right question. Back to Joshua 5. What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What's remarkable about that is they had a city to conquer. And yet Jesus on this road is looking at Joshua and saying, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. I've been studying this week about, where did that start? Like, take off your shoes for for this is holy ground. Like, where did that come from? Like, I don't know. You know, I just think that if I'm with somebody that's been living out in the desert for 40 years, taking off your shoes is not really a holy kind of thing. Like, leave them on. Where did that start? And nobody really knows. You know, there's a lot of cultural stuff that talks about that that's out of reverence or when people come into the site of royalty, they take off their shoes out of reverence, you know? Well, let me take a little license here because I think in some ways Jesus is just saying, take off your shoes, we're going to be here for a while. Just be here with me. You're not going anywhere. See, because whenever I worship the Lord, whenever I recognize him for who he is, you know what it causes me to do? Not my will, but your will be done. I'm willing to trade now all the things that I thought success should be, and I'm going to trade them for what you think success should be. I'm going to trade all this drivenness to prove to myself and to the world that I'm worthy, and I'm going to trade this now for being worthy because I understand I'm loved. And I'm going to trade all this mark that I'm going to leave on this earth by what I do 
to the greatest mark that I leave on this world is how I love. When we're shaped by that, it changes us. And I'm telling you, it, it will mess you up, literally. It'll mess you up when you begin to say, okay, I'm going to take off my shoes and camp out with the one that is the lover of my soul and being with him, I'm going to grasp how much he really does love me. And then when that is impacting me and fills me with the measure of God, guess what's going to happen when I'm with other people? I'm going to bring the measure of God to my relationships with other people and I'm going to love them. I'm going to bring love. I'm going to be a bearer of the beams of love. But when that happens, man, it changes what's in between. I was reading, maybe you've heard of Johnny Erickson. She's uh, written a bunch of books. And when she was young, she was skiing and she went off a cliff and she broke her neck and she was paralyzed and she's been in a wheelchair from that moment for, I don't know how old she is now, but for the last 40 years maybe she's been in a wheelchair Did I get that wrong? Oh, she was diving into the water while she was skiing because she's multitasking, all right? She was swimming, all right, while she was skiing. Was it in Colorado? Okay. Okay, there was this guy named Jack, and he was skiing. Listen to what she said about this event. Even though I've had rough moments in my wheelchair, for the most part, I consider... Uh, this a gift from the Lord. Just as Jesus exchanged the meaning of the cross from a symbol of torture to one of hope and salvation, he gives me the grace to do the same with my chair. If a cross can become a blessing, so can a wheelchair. The wheelchair, in a sense, is behind me now. The despair's over. There are now other crosses to bear, other wheelchairs in my life to be exchanged into gifts. You know, doesn't that just sound like the kind of stuff that somebody would read in a church sermon? You know, like, oh, the wheelchair, it is a blessing from the Lord. Like, come on, you know, like, really? But isn't that what happens when we understand how profoundly we're loved? Is that our handicaps in reality become great gifts for us? Is that possible? Is that possible for you this morning? When you look at all the things that you're stepping into in your life that you know you're in over your head with. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Those things that you know you're in over your head. Could that be an asset for you? That wheelchair in your life, can you say, my inability to know how to do this makes me come and take my shoes off in front of Jesus and say, you're the only one that can do it. You're the only one that's going to do it. And if you don't show up and do it, it ain't going to happen. See, what happens when we camp out in this place, when we exchange the question of, are you for my plan or are you against my plan, to God saying, no, I'm for you. And when you hear that, are you for me? When we step into that journey, guess what? Our eyes are open to something that's bigger. Because now the curtain gets pulled back and we begin to see a big story. The small story is, I sure hope things go the way I want them to. The big story is, well, okay, God, you had something much bigger planned here. 
And am I willing to let go of my small story and step into your big story? So, children's home. Uh, I go through the catalog and I try to find as many things that, uh, that blow up and shoot through the sky as I possibly can because I think that wouldn't bore, bore me. So I ordered like 400 of these rockets and we made rockets all summer long and had constant competitions. The challenge was keeping them from shooting them at each other. You know, we had launch pads and somebody would kick them over, you know. That's a whole other story, but we're making the first one and I'm saying, okay, this is going to be fun, everybody. You're going to get to make your rocket and you get to paint it and personalize it. So we're in this crafts room. And all the kids are, uh, you know, they got their rocket and they're painting it and, you know, and they're putting stuff on it that's inappropriate and all that stuff. And that's cool. You know, I'm like, I don't care. And uh, although they probably will land on the chapel and somebody will find it and it'll have my name on it. And, you know, and uh, I looked over in the corner and I'm in the small story. Go with me here, okay? I'm in over my head. I've never done crafts before. I don't even know how to shoot these rockets. I've never even read the instructions on them. And you've got to have a battery. And I didn't find that out until the day we went out to shoot them. And I'm like, oh, you got, oh, tomorrow, you know? Got to have a battery. So I'm in over my head big time. I'm with a bunch of kids whose parents are in prison. I'm uh, almost a senior in college and have never done this before. All I wanted was a paycheck, all right? And I look over in the corner, and there's a girl sitting over there. She's about 16 years old. And uh, her arms are folded, and she's not painting nothing. So I'm cheery. You know, I'm positive. I'm, you know, I'm a seven. I'm an enthusiast. And I go over to her, and I go, so, Karen, what's going on? Don't you want to paint your rocket? You know? <laughs> no, leave me alone. Oh, uh, come on. Enthusiast, all right? I'm going to succeed. Come on. Let's paint the rocket. I'll help you paint it. And uh, she looked up at me and she grabbed the rocket and she (laughs) broke it against the table. And then she threw it across the room and she goes, there it flew. Leave me alone. So I got her in a headlock, you know? (laughs) No. What do you do? I, I'm not a teacher. I've never been in a room full of teenagers. All the kids are looking at me. What? Like, there's no principal. This is a children's home. Where do you do you send them to their room? I don't know. I have no idea. They just threw me in there. They just said, "Good luck," you know. And I just stand there and I just look at her because I don't know what to do. Literally, I do not know what to do. And I'm stressing out inside, like, you know, what's going to happen here? And then she starts just hitting the table with her fist. And started screaming, why did they leave me? Why did they leave me? And every kid in that room got quiet. Because they were all saying the same thing. Why did they leave us? And guess what happened at that moment? Uh, I didn't say anything. But at that moment, God pulled back the curtain and said, forget the rockets. That's not why you're here this summer. This is why you're here this summer. See, when we know how much we're loved, 
it gives us courage to step into the journey of other people's lives that need to be loved. It gives us the strength because we don't go in alone anymore. You know, we may be limping and we may be wounded, but we're not alone because we've stopped asking the what and we started asking the who and the who says, I am here. Are you in awe of me? And that summer, that group of ragtag kids, uh, they learned how to swim. That girl learned how to swim by the end of the summer. And we became great friends. And we had lots of talks about why they left her. Because they left her. There's no pretty story to tell about it. They left her. And they weren't coming back. So she knew what it was like not to be loved. What she needed is to know what it's like to be loved. See, that's what happens when we start getting the right answers to all the wrong questions, is it begins to change our understanding of why we would ask the question in the first place. What a success. As leaders, we get the privilege to step into that journey first for ourselves and then the brilliance with other people. So why has God got you where he's got you? Do you think you're just going to school to get a degree? Do you think that's how small the story is for you? Do you think you're just a parent just to get through the day? Just to get your kids through school? Do you think that's what this is all about? Do you think you work where you work and you do what you do just so you can get a paycheck? Do you think that what you've been called to is just to get through this and have some kind of success that you can say to other people, look, you see, my life matters. Do you ever read the obituaries? That's kind of morbid, isn't it? Any of you, I, okay, I read the obituaries sometimes. And I'm always intrigued by the things that families choose to put in the newspaper. And I wonder, do any of these people write their own obituaries? Are any of these people such control freaks that when they die, they get to tell the world what they want the world to know about them because they don't want their parents or their families to be in charge of writing that in the newspaper? I think I would kind of like to do that, though, you know? But when you read, when you look at these long obituaries, it has long list of all their successes. And I read that, and here's what goes through my mind. Do you think their family loved them? Do you think they loved them? You know, it's interesting, and I'll say this and then close with a challenge for you. If you're married here this morning, let me say to you, the greatest mark that you're going to leave on this earth, trust me, is how you love the person that you're married to. Let me tell you why. Because you're creating a legacy and a family system, trust me, that will outlive you. It will outlive you. And what we do in moderation, guess what our kids are going to do? And the people around us, They will do in excess. So how do you love? So at the end here, let me ask you this. Where is God calling you to change the question? From Lord, are you for my deal or against my deal? To who are you? Where is he calling you to change that question from what to who? Where do you see him? And where do you worship?
Where do you fall down on your face and take off your shoes and go, yes, Lord. You're the Lord of glory. I see you. I'm going to camp out here. So let's pray for a second. I'm just use this time as we pray and take a few minutes before we uh, sing here and just respond to the Lord's question. And meditate on that. Where do you need to change the question from what to who? Where is he calling you out of the small story into the big story? It's an amazing thing that before Jesus ever sent Joshua to Jericho, he came to Joshua. And the amazing thing about you guys is that many of you, God is sending you to some amazing Jerichos. And you're going to do things that all of us are going to stand in awe of. But don't miss the fact that he comes to you first. That he's the one that gives you the power and the strength and the ability to not only love, but to do things that we'll all stand in awe of. So don't miss out the fact that he's meeting you on the road first before he ever calls you to the things that he calls you to do. So let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that you're the kind of God that meets us on the road of our journeys and that you're the one that comes and reminds us and whispers us that this is about love. This whole journey is about love. That it's about a who, the one who loves us and empowers us and enriches our lives so that we can be those that step out of the small story into the big story. Especially when you call us to the great things that you're calling us to, like the walls of Jericho. So Lord, I pray for my friends this morning that as we ponder that and consider what it means for us to live lives of worship, lives in awe of what you've done for us and who you are. Father, as we ponder that, that, Lord, you would meet us in those deep places and give us deep resolve, Lord, that this is the place we want to camp out with. We praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.